Okay. For all of you intrepid HIV warriors who spent the morning on HIV and decided to stay the afternoon and jump into the world of hepatitis, welcome. We're, we're very excited that you're here. We have a uh, series of talks this afternoon giving us an overview of, of issues in liver disease, uh, focused hep C discussion, a focused hepatitis B discussion, and then cases that will highlight issues in all of those areas. So I'm very pleased to be able to introduce Alex Monto. Alex is a professor of clinical medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, where he's been for the last 18 years. Uh, he is a hepatologist primarily based at the VA and uh, has a wealth of experience in the broad arena of liver disease. Um, as you start to, if you're just starting or if you have been treating patients with viral hepatitis, you uh, either understand or need to learn to understand that, that liver disease is an important part of what we do. This is not just an infectious disease. So Alex, come on up and uh, we're gonna hear about issues in liver disease for the non-hepatologist. So thank you very much, Ken, for that nice introduction. Thanks uh, to the organizers for inviting me. And um, so like they say in Monty Python, right, and now for something completely different. Um, so my, uh, my talk is um, kind of an overview of liver disease. So for the next half hour or so, um, we'll uh, just touch on staging of liver disease, think about liver cancer, cirrhosis, and then just kind of get introduced to hepatitis B and hepatitis C epidemiology particularly, which then uh, the next two speakers will go into in detail. So these are my disclosures. Um, I've been a PI on clinical trials with AbbVie, but I haven't gotten any other type of support from them. My wife, who is Priscilla Shu, serves as an advisor and speaker for Gilead on non-hepatology topics. So in terms of the learning objectives, um, I'd like uh, y'all to just relax over the next 30 minutes or so and uh, uh, think about uh, identifying the progression of liver disease in a patient and thinking about, okay, how are we gonna try to take the appropriate management steps like screening for uh, liver cancer, which is uh, cellular carcinoma, um, thinking about how can we uh, prevent liver disease from progressing. That's kind of the point of view of the hepatologist, prevent the liver from being injured. Um, as well as um, learning to screen optimally for hepatitis B and hepatitis C, um, as well as understanding the current American disease burden and kind of an overview of management options for these conditions. So, of course, we have a knowledge uh, question up front. What is the most common uh, cause, what is the most common individual cause of chronic liver disease in the United States? And you have seven choices. NASH, fatty liver disease, hepatitis, you can see. So I'm going to try and start the timer here. Try tapping it again. 
Okay, so uh, a lot of you thought that fatty liver disease was the most common form of liver disease in the United States. Alcohol and hep C were next. Well, I guess we'll see the answer during my talk, right? All right, so um, uh, the liver is the largest internal organ in the body, weighs sort of three or four pounds, the largest gland, um, receives blood flow through the portal venous system, which is um, low pressure but nutrient rich, um, as well as the hepatic artery. And the jobs of the liver, of course, I think are familiar to probably everybody, protein, lipid, cholesterol synthesis, glucose metabolism, production of bile, which emulsifies lipids. Um, and there are unique immune responses within the liver. So when we think about chronic viral hepatitis, uh, bear in mind that your immune system is, is operating in a specific environment when it's successfully um, uh, treating these conditions or managing these conditions. Here's a nice picture of the liver. Uh, with, uh, obviously, nice uh, kind of maroon organ up here. You can see the... Um, portal vein here, this big uh, blue structure, so draining, uh, uh, draining nutrient-rich blood from the gut as well as the hepatic artery here. And um, so you can also see that uh, the liver has a close proximity to the spleen, which is over here, and uh, uh, through the splenic vein, uh, pressures in the liver uh, that are uh, increased in patients with chronic liver disease increase pressures uh, in the splenic vein and cause the spleen to enlarge and the platelet count often to go down. So um, uh, we talk about imaging and the significance of the spleen sometimes. Okay, so uh, these in fact, in the order that they were given, are the most common cause of liver disease. So the majority of you got the question right. Uh, NASH and fatty liver um, are the most common uh, at about 23 million. Alcohol, number two. Um, chronic hepatitis C, somewhere in the three to six million range of chronic infection. Hepatitis B, less common. And you can see that uh, hemochromatosis um, and primary biliary cirrhosis, or now uh, what's called primary biliary cholangitis, uh, less common. And what is this? The liver with cirrhosis in it. So. Um, uh, cirrhosis, so again, uh, just kind of looking across an autopsy sample of a liver. So uh, the, one of the reasons I put this up, though, is not just to gross you out right after lunch, but um, uh, to, this is what we're looking for on our imaging tests, this nodular surface, you know, an organ that's becoming scarred, and any form of chronic liver disease can lead to this at its end stage. So a lot of times when you talk to patients about cirrhosis, they say, well, cirrhosis just comes from alcohol, but of course, um, you know, we're all familiar with the fact that hep C is a very important cause of cirrhosis, um, and any form of chronic liver disease, if the liver just keeps getting injured, can, can wind up here. So we're then going to have a couple of slides about um, what do we do for a cirrhotic patient. So um, cirrhosis management, if, so if you're looking after a cirrhotic patient in um, clinic, if the patient is compensated, meaning that they haven't had other problems from their cirrhosis, um, one of the main things that we do is hepatoma surveillance. So in any patient with cirrhosis, they should generally get an ultrasound, uh, plus or minus a serum AFP, every six months. So when you're first starting that, that's obviously pretty burdensome for the patient every six months for the rest of my life. Um, but the risk of liver cancer, as I'll mention again, three to five percent per year 
in cirrhotic patients. So, um, you know, we were uh, talking all during the morning about uh, important issues in HIV. Um, your patients with cirrhosis may die of liver cancer. I'm going to talk about liver cancer over the next few slides. So it, it is really important that um, appropriate patients are being counseled about their risk and screened because um, liver cancer is, uh, you know, one of the worst complications that, that we'll talk about um, in this conference. So if, if you have a compensated cirrhotic, you can at least think about screening for varices. You can be monitoring liver function as well as vaccinating them. Uh, particularly in hep C patients, um, we vaccinate against A and B. Really, uh, any patient with cirrhosis should be immune to these. And when a patient has decompensation, which starts them over here, um, they really decompensate just in certain ways. Some develop encephalopathy, um, some develop ascites, uh, at which point they're at risk for the further complications of either SBP or hepatorenal syndrome. Uh, patients can have a variceal bleed or they can just have progressive liver dysfunction. So um, it's one of the nice things about liver disease. Uh, there are just certain things that happen uh, related to it. And uh, in a compensated cirrhotic, we're thinking about certain things. And then when the patient decompensates, um, you know, we need to be managing more complex conditions. Okay, so um, talking about liver cancer, um, the worst complication of cirrhosis for sure. Uh, it's either the third or fourth most common cause of cancer death worldwide, so over 600,000 um, deaths per year. And uh, as I'll show in a slide, the, you know, the prevalence in the U.S. is going up every year. So this is a cancer that we're seeing a lot more frequently now, and we will continue to see more frequently in the coming years. Um, worldwide, uh, the majority of the cases are in Asia, but again, as we see more patients, particularly with hep C, Cirrhosis, the risk in cirrhotics, as I mentioned, three to five percent per year, which uh, is why screening is recommended. And the idea with screening is liver cancer is uh, much easier to treat, and the patient um, can be considered for liver transplant if the cancer is small, if the cancer is limited. And so that's why we recommend screening every six months, because uh, it has to do with the, the growth uh, period of most small liver cancer. So the idea is if a patient's going to develop it, You'd like to uh, find it when it's only a couple, three centimeters in size as compared to uh, much larger and invading blood vessels and so forth. Um, the five-year overall survival in the U.S., um, I, I've been really interested in this number. I think it's about 8% overall. So, again, you would think, oh, you know, we find this cancer when it's small, there's transplant as an option. You'd think we'd be doing better with liver cancer, but because a lot of patients are still not being screened, again, uh, overall five-year survival of 8% as we sit here, I think is pretty disappointing. And so, um, uh, again, hopefully we can be making further progress with this tumor. Um, in terms of how do we diagnose it, you really need a, uh, I list a triple or quad-phase CT or a multi-phase MRI. And uh, this is an HCC here in a cirrhotic liver, so you can see the nodular contour. Um, and it enhances during the arterial phase of contrast. So that's the first phase of contrast after uh, contrast is injected in the peripheral circulation. Um, liver cancers uh, pirate their blood through the hepatic artery. So we take advantage of that during the arterial phase of contrast. Um, the tumors get bright relative uh, to other areas in the liver. And then um, as blood is arriving later through the portal vein, uh, they have washout. So these are the characteristics of liver cancer. If you do a multi-phase uh, imaging test, 
Um, you may see your radiologist give you the LIRAD scoring system. So we developed a specific scoring system to try to say what is a liver cancer in a multi-phase CT or MRI. LIRADS 5 being it has all the characteristics of liver cancer. LIRADS 4 quite worrisome and LIRADS 3, um, you know, hard to tell, could, could well not be cancer. So uh, this is the way that we think about uh, liver cancer in, in terms of managing these patients. Uh, so this is the UNO staging system. There are small nodules, so so-called T1, which would be a nodule less than 1.9 centimeters. T2 criteria, which are the criteria um, that allow you to be considered for a transplant, a single nodule, uh, two to five centimeters, or two or three nodules, all of which are less than three. And then you can see as you get bigger tumors or um, you have vascular invasion or regional lymph nodes or metastatic disease, you move up the scoring system. Anybody tell me what the, the name commonly given to these criteria are, T2 criteria? Single tumor less than five, two or three nodules, all less than three. Curable, hopefully, uh, hopefully. These are uh, what we call the Milan criteria, the Milan criteria. And it comes from the city uh, uh, of Milan where this paper uh, originated. So this was the key paper published in the New England Journal 1996 um, that found that in fact, when you do liver transplants in patients with limited stage HCC, um, that they do very well. So this paper was kind of revolutionary, 1996. So uh, Vincenzo Mazzaferro uh, was from Milan and they said, hey, let's try to transplant these patients. And when they did, um, they got 85% four-year survival. So when you're contrasting that to the 8% five-year survival overall, the patients do much better with transplants. So uh, very common in my liver clinic, we'll diagnose a new tumor. The first thing I'm thinking is, is this patient a transplant candidate or not? Am I trying to put this patient on this road? Um, and in terms of pre-transplant ablative techniques like TACE or RFA or alcohol injection, um, again, in the original Milan study, none of that was done. These days, we like to try to kill the tumor locally while we're trying to figure out about if the patient's a transplant candidate or not. So many people do get um, these, uh, these therapies, and uh, you know, we can maybe talk a little bit more about it if you guys have specific questions about it. Um, in terms of risk, the complication in patients with cirrhosis, so again, 3 to 5% HTC. The risk of ascites on an annual basis in a patient with cirrhosis is uh, about 2.5%. Okay, so those are the two main complications that you'll see in your cirrhotics. Variceal bleeding and encephalopathy, um, the two other main complications. Um, but once you've had one of these so-called decompensating events, once you've developed ascites or once you've had variceal bleeding, uh, from a liver clinician's point of view, you're different. You're now a decompensated cirrhotic. We think about using drugs differently in you. And you can see that once you, once you have ascites, you have an 11% risk over the next year of dying. Okay. So that's when these patients really, uh, you know, if they are transplant candidates, that's when liver transplant needs to be figured out um, because decompensated patients are fundamentally on a very different path um, than patients who remain compensated. Okay, so to start off talking about specific types of liver disease, um, I have one slide here on NASH since it's number one. Um, the rising prevalence uh, is linked very much to the US obesity epidemic with uh, diabetes and hyperlipidemia. Um, as in other causes of chronic liver disease, the development of cirrhosis takes a long time. 
So it's another thing. The liver just get, gets injured very um, slightly in a lot of these diseases over a long time. It really takes 30 or 40 years in most patients to actually develop cirrhosis. Um, and it, we think it occurs in probably 15 to 25% of NASH patients overall. So again, a lot of people uh, are gonna get a lot of liver injury from any of these things, but not ultimately develop cirrhosis. Only described in 1991, which is why it's kind of a newer uh, liver disease. And of course, in the setting of HIV infection, um, uh, there's kind of interesting uh, natural history of, of fat in the liver due, due to various things, due to fat redistribution with other syndromes. Um, uh, and due to obesity itself. There's no specific therapy yet, although we are working on it. Lipid-lowering drugs, vitamin E, have been trialed, uh, tried. It's not clear that they're a benefit. Weight loss, exercise, and diabetic control have been found to be a benefit in terms of slowing NASH progression. Okay, so second audience response question. We're gonna think about liver disease in general. How do I know how much liver disease my patient has? You have four things that you can push. One, only a liver biopsy can diagnose cirrhosis for certain. Um, two is I don't have transient elastography device at my hospital, so how could I possibly know how much liver disease my patient has? Three is a combination of clinical findings like spider angiomata on the skin, thrombocytopenia, uh, nodular liver on imaging. It's pretty good at telling me if a patient has significant cirrhosis or liver consult. Let the, let the hepatologist tell me how much liver disease my patient has. Okay, I'm gonna start the clock. TV shows are a little dated. Okay, so um, this is what I was getting at, that I think uh, even though I'm gonna talk about different ways to assess a patient for liver disease, really this combination of clinical findings the low platelet count, image the liver, look for evidence of portal hypertension. Um, a lot of times you're gonna be correct. And, and again, clearly you can place a hepatology consult because it's you know, one of the things that keeps us all in business telling people how much liver disease patients have. In terms of only a liver biopsy can diagnose cirrhosis for certain, I can definitely see that point of view as well. Um, but a lot of times, uh, you know, our imaging and, and our fibrosis tests are best at telling cirrhosis. So I think I would, I would uh, say that uh, we can usually tell quite certainly. And if you have a patient with a nodular liver, a cause of chronic liver disease and ascites, you know, usually the, you know, you don't even do a liver biopsy in that setting because you're just comfortable that they have cirrhosis. Okay, so I have a couple slides here on assessing um, fibrosis. Again, you can see you have clinical findings like physical exam, low platelets, so that platelet count below 100,000. And I know that in HIV positive patients, sometimes they do have a you know, low platelet count without a clear reason related to their liver. So HIV positive patients are a little bit different, but um, in general, thinking about a low platelet count as a risk factor, I, I think makes sense. So on abdominal imaging, surface abnormalities, dilated portal veins, collateral vessels, there are serum markers of fibrosis, so you may have uh, heard about things like APRI and FIB4. We use FIB4 uh, in the VA uh, quite a bit, you searching national databases. It just involves platelets, AST, ALT, and age. And a FIB4 greater than 3.25 is a reasonable marker, in fact, of a patient with uh, cirrhosis. It's something like 80% sensitive, something like that. Um, there are tests like FibroSure or FibroTest 
um, that can also, of course, be ordered. And in many cases, we do a series of these things, um, and uh, we try and pull all the information together to ultimately give our best estimate about cirrhosis or stage of fibrosis. So under liver biopsy, I have what's called the metavere fibrosis stage. So if you do a liver biopsy and look at liver tissue under the microscope, you can stage uh, fibrosis, particularly in the setting of hepatitis C, for example, as being F0, which is no fibrosis, with advancing fibrosis up to F4, which is cirrhosis. F3 is numerous septi without cirrhosis. So uh, again, that, that scar tissue is kind of advancing through the liver in a patient with F3 disease getting closer um, to cirrhosis. Um, we think that most patients start out without any scar tissue. So when they get their hep C, um, their, their liver is generally pretty healthy um, and that everybody kind of moves stepwise F1, F2, F3, F4. And so you're trying to just figure out in your patient where they are at this point in time. There are other uh, fancy um, tests. I mentioned transient elastography, uh, this uh, fancy ultrasound called RFI. Um, these days, uh, MR elastography has become uh, more important. So again, there are uh, really a, a lot of different markers. Um, and liver biopsy is still the gold standard in terms of uh, being sure uh, of uh, what liver disease you're, uh, what stage of liver disease you're dealing with, particularly in with uh, tests, blood tests and imaging tests that don't specifically tell you. But even liver biopsy is not perfect. I think uh, we've all seen patients who um, uh, we think have less liver disease on a liver biopsy, but ultimately a few years later they appear to be cirrhotic. And so, um, you know, even liver biopsy itself has its limitations. Um, CT and MR are really good, particularly in the extremes, cirrhosis versus no cirrhosis. Um, uh, and uh, ultrasound and uh, um, particularly transient elastography, which is um, the so-called fiber scan. Uh, fiber scan is great. It measures liver stiffness in kilopascals from very low, like less than five kilopascals up to the cirrhotic range. Um, which is over about 13 kilopascals. So this is measuring actual liver stiffness. So just another good thing to, uh, to bear in mind. So uh, again, in terms of alternatives to biopsy, I've mentioned many of these. And the bottom line, I think, is this final bullet point, which is many serum fibrosis markers have a sensitivity of about 80% for diagnosing significant fibrosis, but are quite variable in the middle ranges. So even as we sit here now, we can't say, oh, you could just order this one lab test and you'll be sure. Um, so we're pretty good at, at uh, figuring out if a patient has advanced fibrosis or not, but in the middle, uh, liver biopsy may still have a role. So um, in the interest of time, I'm going to move reasonably quickly through hep C uh, and, uh, and hep B, just because uh, Dr. Marks and Dr. Sherman are going to go through them in a bit more detail, in a lot more detail. The bottom line, though, is, of course, hep C therapy as it was between 1998 and 2010 with 48 weeks of interferon-based therapy for most patients and cure rates in the 20 to 80 percent range is now over. Um, three hepatitis C proteins, the protease, the polymerase, and NS5A are all under attack with, uh, with our new combination drugs. So, you know, we're getting, of course, to have fancy, uh, fancy ways to hit multiple proteins, uh, just the way that you all in the HIV field have been doing for many years. Um, and of course, uh, in the future, we're really going to be looking at all oral interferon-free, at least two drug uh, regimens with a 90-plus percent cure. Just going to um, put the abbreviations up, because you'll see them several times. 
So um, soft lead or so-called Harvoni is uh, listed up top. Combination of sofosbuvir and ledipasvir is a single pill. The Pro-D regimen, which um, we used a lot last year, but which is, is not used very much anymore, actually a triple drug regimen with a protease inhibitor boosted with ritonavir. Grisoprevir and elbisvir, or so-called Zepatir, one of our new combination regimens uh, approved in February this year. Dacladisvir is an important NS5A inhibitor. And our newest friend in this field, soft with Velpatisvir. Uh, this is given the trade name Epclusa, and it's really a stronger version of Harvoni. This is just a timeline of approval. And again, you can see that um, the soft and Velpatisvir plus or minus ribavirin um, our latest regimen, which is terrific for genotype 2 and genotype 3 patients particularly, as well as many genotype 1 patients, uh, was just FDA approved in June. So you'll hear much more about it from Dr. Mark. Um, in, terms of, um, the, uh, in terms of what we're dealing with with hep C, uh, I'll just show you a couple things uh, briefly about this study. So this was published in Digestive uh, Liver Disease in 2011. And this was a projection of what we're going to see. The green line here uh, indicates projected deaths related to hepatitis C. Um, the red line indicates decompensated cirrhosis. And the, uh, the green, or sorry, the blue uh, triangles indicate metastatic carcinoma. You can see that ultimately deaths um, due to hep C are going to be on the highest panel, but we will have patients with decompensated cirrhosis. And liver cancer, we expect to approximately double. Um, uh, over the next 10 to 15 years. Uh, what I will point out is this study was published in 2011, and they projected deaths due to hepatitis C at this point in 2016 as about 12,000. And the CDC found earlier this year that, in fact, uh, they estimated about 20,000 deaths in the U.S. Uh, in 2015 due to hepatitis C. So even though it seems scary to have, you know, so many deaths from hepatitis C, in fact, we're on a steeper um, part of the curve. We're already actually, you know, about here, five years later. So hopefully uh, we'll be able to, again, take the top off of the curve by, um, by using uh, our new drugs and uh, curing people before they get to cirrhosis. Um, you all know about the risk factors for hepatitis C. I just wanted to highlight that first bullet, which is um, the CDC recommended universal baby boomer screening. Again, probably um, uh, most all of you in the room already know about this, but any patient born between 45 and 65 is now considered reasonable to test them for hepatitis C, even without um, risk behaviors. And in terms of um, trying to figure out, well, you know, are, are all these uh, expensive hep C drugs um, worth it? So this was um, a study uh, from s sort of data from 2012. What if we identify uh, a million new cases of hep C from birth cohort screening. If we treat half of these patients, and here under this projection, we would only cure about two-thirds. So A, hopefully we have the resources in many settings to treat, I guess, up to half or maybe even more than half of the patients. We expect to cure over 90%. So again, these are projections from a few years ago. So hopefully we can do even better. But this projects 121,000 deaths averted, which is saving Three billion in medical costs, and in terms of cost per quality adjusted life year, um, you know the therapies. And this was PEG riba plus a DAA, so not quite as expensive as our current therapies, but um, quite cost effective to use these therapies. 
Um, just gonna highlight um, that we've treated over 700 patients at my hospital, uh, the San Francisco VA, and there have been about 70,000 patients treated within the VA nationally over the last couple of years. So, um, you know, we're clearly in the midst of a um, uh, hepatitis C almost eradication campaign, uh, which I think many of you in the HIV field can understand, uh, you, you know, when you have a curable virus, you know, why not go for it? Okay, another audience response um, question, and then uh, we'll do talk a little bit about hepatitis B, and then we'll go ahead and, and uh, move on to Dr. Mark's talk. So, shifting gears, hepatitis B. Who should be checked for hep B? One, any HIV-positive patient with unexplained LP abnormalities. Two, a patient from a hepatitis B endemic area like much of Asia, Africa, and the Middle East with unexplained LP abnormalities. Three, hep C patients who are actively being considered for new therapies. Four, no patients because we can't cure hepatitis B anyway. Uh, five is the first two. Six is only the first and the third. And seven is all three. Here's the clock. Well, this question was, uh, I, I have too sophisticated an audience. Uh, you, I particularly was uh, interested in highlighting the fact that um, there's now an FDA black box warning about hepatitis B reactivation in patients who are treated with the new hep C drugs. Um, so just thinking about in that patient in whom we're going to be starting the hep C drugs, what's their hep B status? A lot of patients are so-called isolated core positive, meaning that they saw uh, hepatitis B, but cleared it in the past. Um, so uh, at least thinking through what's that patient's current hepatitis B status, as well as how can they be optimally managed, I think we'll touch on that later. But um, so yes, absolutely. Correct answers, one, two, and three. So in terms of hep B, um, these, uh, this is kind of the epidemiology, about a million chronic car carriers, four to 5,000 deaths per year related to hep B complications. Um, Hepatitis B is a little bit different um, than hepatitis C in that um, some patients have a so-called less active carrier state. So they, not everybody will progress to cirrhosis. Some people are more like carriers and it's not even clear in people with less active hepatitis B that therapy is of benefit to them. However, liver cancer, which is shown uh, on the far side, HCC, uh, can develop even in patients who are carriers. So. Uh, this is the disease where patients get screened for liver cancer on, uh, based on age and gender, uh, particularly if we think that patients were infected early in their lives in endemic areas. Screening in men begins at age 40, screening in women begins at age 50. And uh, cirrhosis, even though we definitely do screen patients because patients with cirrhosis are highest risk, screening is age-related in hepatitis B. So. Um, Again, Im important to just bear that in mind and to uh, start screening appropriately. Um, so uh, maybe I'll, I'll make this my last slide just in the uh, interest of time. But um, I think this is, this is always important when I talk about hepatitis B because there's so many different markers that I think sometimes it can be confusing. So I always think about hepatitis B in terms of three stages. And the three stages are shown um, in yellow here, in green here, and in purple up here. And for, your, for any individual patient, they're pretty much in, in one of these 
three stages, and so the question is to, to figure out which one. So patients at the most active stage tend to be hepatitis B E antigen positive. They tend to have fairly high levels of uh, hepatitis B viremia. They often have an elevated ALT, um, and so they have more active disease. They tend to have more liver injury. Their risk for HCC is higher. And uh, so the goal of hepatitis B antiviral therapy is also to get patients here, which is more like what we call a carrier state. Their hepatitis B surface antigen is still positive. They have lost E antigen in many cases. Their ALT is normal. And their hepatitis B is negative or low. Um, and so that's really as good as we can do with our uh, hepatitis B therapies, is to suppress a patient, take a patient who's active, and at least put them into this uh, state on therapy. The final um, uh, purple box up here shows a patient who's hepatitis B surface antigen negative. So this is really the, um, the cure, if you will, of hepatitis B. Um, getting a patient with hepatitis B um, to the level where uh, they don't have very much activity of the virus. And again, we can have some discussions about do the, are these patients ever hep B viremic, which uh, comes up a lot in when we're thinking about patients who are also HIV positive. We know that state exists. Um, although in general, thinking about uh, you know, any patient with hep B tends to have their hep B surface antigen positive. Um, but for example, under chemotherapy, um, patients can go from um, this past sort of cured state up to an inactive state and all the way up to significant hepatitis B. Um, so uh, again, that's why we don't talk about hepatitis B cure uh, in, the same, in the same way that we do about hepatitis C because, of course, hepatitis B is a, a long-lasting intranuclear virus and, and can always reactivate. So I think um, in the interest of time, I'm going to go ahead and stop. But I think we hopefully have a couple minutes for questions if questions have been handed out or we have microphones up front. do our comparative slides show how much you guys okay so this is uh one of the straightforward questions. You guys had all this uh, mostly to begin with. So we're going to do one more time. Most common cause of chronic liver disease in the U.S. Ready? Go. Perfect. So everybody was paying attention. Thank you. Are you recommending uh, ultrasounds for people who are hep B carriers only on an early basis? So, um, yeah, that, so the question is, do we do ultrasounds in people who are just hep B carriers? And um, the answer is basically yes. Now, the difficult thing, uh, because the general screening guidelines for hepatitis B that are published by kind of, you know, international liver organizations are based around people who 
we think got hepatitis B early in their lives. So uh, from endemic areas, from places like China, India, where people get exposed to hepatitis B early, maybe even perinatally. So that's when you probably are at risk for hepatitis or for hepatocellular carcinoma when you're age 40 and a man, for example, in that setting. So how do you extrapolate those data to somebody in the United States who may have been sexually exposed in their uh, 20s and just been one of the unlucky people who did not uh, clear hepatitis B? Because of course hepatitis B is cleared about 95% of the time in that setting. So yeah, it's difficult because um, we don't know for sure uh, that we should apply the same rules, but we tend to. So in a patient who has longstanding hepatitis B, um, for sure patients with cirrhosis should be screened, but in general the same age guidelines apply. So if you even have a healthy carrier, uh, 45-year-old man, technically, uh, it's at least a good idea to have the discussion with them about screening and probably the procedure for screening. I don't know. Ken can give his opinion. So even with HPV DNAs that are, you know, less than a thousand, uh, you would still do that anyway, don't yeah. you? Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, carriers are, are still at risk for liver cancer. And again, our carriers here in the United States are probably at lower risk yeah. uh, than those who really have had hepatitis B all their lives. But and, and I'll you. I'll show you some data on that in an upcoming talk. Okay. Thank you. Other questions? We have time for one or two more questions. Right here in the front, yeah. Um, hep B reactivation during hep C treatment. Um, very relevant uh, question. I think um, we are going to be able to cover it quite a bit during the panel discussions and in talking about hepatitis C. So Dr. Marks is uh, letting me know that she, she's going to talk about it. So definitely we will talk about it. a great question and again a kind of a controversial area. The question is in a patient who, who is in the fortunate group and again that tends to be about 5 to 10 maybe 15 percent of patients who are placed on who have hep B and who are placed on hep B antiviral therapy and who lose surface antigens so the so-called uh, cured patients um, are uh, at least successfully treated. Um, do we need to continue to screen them for HCC? Um, Unfortunately, again, we don't have guidance that tells us that you don't. And we know that HCC risk probably um, goes up as people get older as well. So unfortunately, uh, it's a great question. You know, that's true after hepatitis C cure as well, that a patient who had significant liver disease, they're treated and cured for their hep C. We think they remain at risk for HCC. So he hepatitis B is a blood-borne infection and the spread just like HIV. Almost all the Hep B patients I see are co-infected with uh, HIV, and I don't see hepatitis B in the drug uses. I only see a lot of hepatitis C. Why is this? Um, so I think everybody probably heard the question. Um, in, among HIV-positive patients, we don't see that much activity of the, of the hepatitis B, meaning they're, they're Hep B surface antigen positive, um, but there is a lot of activity of the Hep C. 
So to answer your question, uh, we have a better immune response um, to hepatitis B. That's why we have a vaccine against it. And so an immunocompetent adult will clear hepatitis B 95% of the time. So they, we, our body just does better at clearing hepatitis B and will not clear hepatitis C something like 75% of the time. So we, we just do not have a great inherent immune response. Some people do clear hepatitis C spontaneously, but that, that's why you see a lot of HIV, HCV co-infection, whereas patients uh, did manage to clear their hepatitis B. We just have better immune responses against hepatitis B. So let me just add to that because uh, because I'm in Cincinnati and we are right in the middle of the, uh, this injection drug use, opioid, heroin epidemic. And uh, we are seeing now for the first time uh, a spike in acute hep Bs. We had two admissions last weekend in young injection drug users who should have been vaccinated previously. We saw about two or three in the week before that and we, we have not seen this before, so uh, stay tuned. There's something happening. 